what are the secular bull markets where we can escape this gray overhang of, of rising rates and spiraling inflation and a possible recession? What are the secular trends that are strong enough to supplant that and surpass that? And right now, crypto looks really good, right? Prices are already up and we haven't even had the catalyst of spot Bitcoin launches. You know, BlackRock is already coming into the market. And so I think investors, particularly as they go into year end and they start to reset their portfolios for 2024, are going to look at the available choices. And there's going to be this bright shining light of the best performing asset class of the year, which still has its brightest days ahead of it. And I think that's going to drive some plays. So I think it's setting up pretty well for us. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, a quick shout out from our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including their work on their new ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. You will hear the, about them a little bit later in the show from Dan. Uh, today is October 5th, and we have an awesome interview lined up with Matt Hogan and Ryan Rasmussen from Bitwise. Uh, thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. So I was thinking we could just jump into the big news. Obviously, the ETH Futures ETF uh, launches this week was pretty huge, and Bitwise is, is included in that list. So I just want to get your guys' take on how the launch has gone, is it, how have the flows been, um, and how big of an impact does this have for institutional investors? Uh, great, great question. I mean, zooming out, this is a big week for crypto in general. I think we're entering the, the sort of heart of the ETF era of crypto, and that's going to transform this asset class. Yeah, so we launched two ETFs, uh, AETH, which is 100% Ethereum futures, and BTOP, which is 50% Bitcoin, 50% uh, Ethereum futures equally weighted and rebalanced uh, every quarter. And the, the reception has been certainly lighter than it was for spot Bitcoin or, or for rather for Bitcoin futures ETFs. But we expected that and we're happy with the way they're trading. They're trading at tight bands. We have significant interest from investors. Volume is building over time. So much, much lighter than Bitcoin futures. But that actually makes me uh, hopeful for the people that are buying in today. You know, you don't tell your friends about the trades you make at the peak of the bull market. You tell them about the trades you make when the markets are quiet. This is an indication that sort of mainstream investors haven't realized that we're in a new bull market in crypto. They may not know that crypto is the best performing asset class in the world this year. And that makes me excited for the people who are investing today. And then in terms of the uh, Bitcoin spot ETF that you guys filed for, I believe you guys posted some research in your refiled application. Can you just walk us through like, really why a spot Bitcoin ETF has been so difficult to get approved thus far and why you think maybe this time around might be different? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot at that one. Yeah. So the first spot Bitcoin ETF was filed in 2013 when Bitcoin was trading for about 80 bucks, I think. Uh, so people have been waiting on it for a while. And those who didn't invest waiting for Bitcoin spot ETFs to be approved have missed out on a lot of price appreciation. From the SEC's perspective, there have been historically a lot of concerns with the spot Bitcoin market. They won't let an ETF launch on any market. They've been concerned about market manipulation. Maybe they've been concerned about custody. They've been concerned about trading. The Bitcoin market has matured significantly since that first spot Bitcoin ETF was filed in 2013. And recently, there have been a number of breakthroughs that make me think we're getting close to an approval. One, of course... Grayscale won its lawsuit against the SEC. The judge found that it didn't make sense to allow Bitcoin futures ETFs to launch 
and deny spot Bitcoin ETFs. That was a big win. Uh, to BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, which has uh, a nearly perfect record of launching ETFs, filed to launch a spot Bitcoin ETF with a surveillance agreement with Coinbase in place. And then, as you mentioned, Sam, we just sent in an additional 40 pages of research. And what that research did was answer point by point every objection the SEC has raised over the history of denying spot Bitcoin ETFs. So they've rejected, I think, 33 spot Bitcoin ETFs. For each one, they wrote between 20 and 100 pages of reasons they were rejecting it. And we just line item all those rejections and then provided data-driven responses to explain uh, why the market is now ready to support an ETF. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, that we'll see a spot Bitcoin ETF launch this year. Of course, I can't speak to our filing or any specific filing, but the tea leaves are pointing in a positive direction. And would you say that sentiment uh, kind of is just isolated towards a spot Bitcoin ETF? Because I did hear some rumblings around an ETH spot ETF as well. Is Do you think like regulators kind of view those as two separate things like truly? Or is it like, OK, like at this point, you know, maybe we just call them both a crypto asset that's fair to trade a spot? Yeah. Brian, you want to tackle that one? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a little bit of both. So on the one hand, uh, we did see an application for spot Ethereum ETF get filed within the past month or so. And that was the first time that we had an application for those uh, be filed. Now, I think you won't get to a spot Ethereum ETF before you get to a spot Bitcoin ETF. It's, you know, Bitcoin, the, the oldest and, and largest crypto asset, Ethereum, you know, following that with the sec being the second largest crypto asset. But I think the, the market structure of both of those assets is very similar. And that's why we're seeing the approval of Ethereum futures ETFs this past week. Uh, you know, after Bitcoin futures ETFs were approved, uh, you know, about about a year or two ago. And so um, we're seeing the evolution of both markets kind of follow the same path, which is Ethereum trailing by a few years. And so I don't think we're a long way out from an Ethereum spot ETF once we do get the Bitcoin spot ETF. But I think they look at them a little bit differently. One promising element of the ETH futures ETF being approved is that the market for ETH futures is, is clearly now at the same maturity level as the uh, Bitcoin futures ETF uh, or Bitcoin futures market was, you know, a year or two ago. And so, yeah, we're seeing a little bit of a lag, but I think it's I think it's promising that we're seeing applications for spot Ethereum ETFs. Some of that could be a marketing play. But in general, I think, you know, you don't file unless you you're pretty hopeful or or there's a little, you know, some hope that you could get approved. And so, yeah, I think I think we'll we'll get there, but it'll be a two step process. Yeah. I would just add on to that. I don't think the, the broader market has recognized the level of progress we've made towards getting spot ETFs launched. I think they've been rejected so many times that people have come to believe it's like the boy who cried wolf that we will never actually there will never actually be a wolf. We'll never actually get over the line. But if you talk to the firms, not just Bitwise, but other firms that are operating in this space, it does feel different this time than it did a few months ago. There's been commentary on on Twitter, on social media, about uh, ETF issuers getting responses back on their prospectus, which has never happened before. So I think there are uh, there's reason to believe the market hasn't priced in or thought about the real probability that we may get one in the coming months, uh, both first on Bitcoin and then eventually down the road on ETH. Given the fact that these futures, I'm assuming that they're cash settled instruments. So do you think it's fair to say that a spot approval would have a much more dramatic impact on, I guess, market dynamics than a futures one. And then 
tag teaming on top of that, um, what would you say? Like everyone always talks about like how futures ETFs kind of hurt retail because you have to roll the contracts every month. And then over time, you know, you get eaten at on a percentage basis, whether it's three to 5%. Can you guys just kind of explain like that dynamic? Cause people talk about it, but I don't think anyone actually understands it. A spot ETF is going to be orders of magnitude bigger than a futures ETF. If you look in the gold market, which is the closest corollary spot gold ETFs have about a hundred billion dollars in assets under management and spot or gold futures ETFs actually have zero because the only one that existed closed down because of lack of interest. So what people want is spot Bitcoin. People want is spot Ethereum. They'll use futures-based ETFs until they have those. But in the long run, those are the big dog on a scale of like a hundred X, right? Not, not one X. So they'll have a much bigger impact on the market. You mentioned this issue of contango and roll costs, which historically has been true. The way the futures markets work is they allow you to sort of buy an asset in the future and the price may be higher than it is today. If Bitcoin's trading at 28,000, the futures contract for November may be at $28,100. And because you're maybe typically, not always, but typically overpaying a little bit, you have this drag and it goes by that funny word you mentioned, which is contango. I will say that the market today is different than it was when Bitcoin futures launched in 2021, when we had these conversations around Contango. And the difference is we're no longer in a zero interest rate environment. So the thing that people don't realize about futures ETFs is that when you have futures ETFs, most of the money is actually invested in short-term treasuries. You're getting 100% notional exposure to Ethereum, but most of the money is parked in treasuries. When Bitcoin futures ETFs launched, that was earning zero. Today, that's earning five and a half percent. And so you have to offset some of that contango with this interest income. It's a better environment. Does it still mean spot is better? I think it still means spot is better, but we're not in 2021 anywhere. We're 2023, it's a different environment. It's slightly more favorable. And I think you'll see a little bit less slippage than you have in the past. Quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history. So it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes. But without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. What is it about the futures market that regulators are like, okay, we can give investors this, which is you know, what's generally described as a less desirable product for the reasons you just discussed, that a spot market isn't like, what, like, what is it about spot markets? They're like, hey, you know, let's not give this to investors. This isn't safe. This isn't, this isn't what? <laughs> uh, regulated. Regulated is the answer to that question. So the SEC, the, the, the futures market is regulated by the CFTC. We, of course, have two big regulatory organizations in the U.S. governing investment products. The, the SEC which covers securities and the CFTC, which covers commodities. 
the CFTC launched Bitcoin and Ethereum futures contracts a few years ago. And so it's relatively easy for the SEC to say, well, you guys got this. We're just wrapping up these regulated products in another regulated product. How could we say no? That's different when you get to a spot product where the underlying market is not regulated at the same level. The questions become more complex. It doesn't mean you can't have an ETF, right? I'll go back to gold as an example. The spot gold market is not regulated on 47th Street where you're trading gold bars. It's not like the SEC is looking over their shoulder, right? The spot gold market is unregulated market. So you can have ETFs on relatively unregulated spot markets, but it's just harder. You can't just say the CFTC has it. So that's been the historical difference. Do you expect there to be some type of redemption mechanism for investors or maybe institutional slash accredited investors for these spot products once they hopefully launch? And I have a follow-up question depending upon your answer. <laughs> uh, Ryan, this is this is deep geek ETF stuff, so I can't stop talking. Uh, my apologies. Take it. Take it away. Uh, uh, I, I expect in the future, there may be the ability to redeem on an individual basis. Initially, that complication probably won't exist. So it's an extra complication. People will go with the simple version. If you look at the gold market, sorry to keep using that analogy, but most of the products don't allow that. But there is one that allows that because some people want to be able to redeem uh, directly in an individual basis. But I, I think that's like an added complication. And at this point, we're just trying to get over the finish line. Okay. And then piggybacking off that question is I could just see a world where there'd be an ETH ETF. The issuer would stake that ETH, zero management fees. So it's super attractive to the investor. And then you just take the entire staking yield. Do you think that's like a product that could potentially come to market in the future? I, I, I expect, again, like if we, if we, if we go stepwise, I think you'll see an ETH ETF. And then I think you'll see them engage in staking as that market matures. My hope, Sam, is that the product issuer wouldn't take 100% of the revenue, but rather would take a portion of it uh, and allow a portion of it to go to the investors. So it might more than offset. There may be that 0% expense ratio, and yet they're taking the staking yield. But really, they should split it with investors, right? They should get paid for the act of staking because it is work and it is risk. But it's the investor's money. Uh, and so I, I, I expect, I think that's a clever idea, but uh, it would be even more clever if we gave some of the investors some of that return as well. Wait till they start pumping that through the Lido staking router and that percentage goes up only. That'll, that'll, I'm sure crypto Twitter will love that one. But I got one more ETF question uh, and I hate to pivot back to the first question, but this just came to me was, so we talked about flows and comparing the Bitcoin uh, futures ETF to the, the new ETH futures ETF. And it was a pretty you know significant difference. Is that attributable to the assets like, you know, just uh, institutional attention or demand for Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Or is that more so just like, look, when the Bitcoin ETF futures launch, it was like October 21, Bitcoin was 60K. Crypto was the hottest thing on in town at that point in time. And that's when the that's when the ETF launched. Of course, there is more demand. Is it like, I'm sure the answer is like, you know, some combination of both, but curious to get your thoughts there. Yeah, I yeah. have a thought. You want to try, Ryan? 
Yeah, sure. I think it's mainly driven by the market environment that we're in today. Uh, you mentioned that we're in a much different environment than we were in when Bitcoin Futures uh, ETF launched. And I think that has a lot to do with the amount of interest and, and the flows that we're seeing around the ETH Futures products. We're obviously in a higher interest rate environment. So there's less appetite for risk assets. Crypto obviously falls into that uh, into that band of a portfolio. And so uh, it just is a, is a good reminder of where we are in the market cycle. And uh, it's, it's promising for what the future of these ETFs uh, could look like for sure. But I do think it's mainly a market environment situation versus uh, institutional investor interest in Bitcoin over Ethereum. So, um, you know, we, we do get a lot of interest around Ethereum, especially now compared to a year or two years ago. There's many more questions that we're getting around Ethereum and even kind of longer tail assets uh, than we were primarily getting around Bitcoin a few years ago. And so uh, there, there's definitely interest there. I think there's interest for, you know, spot ETFs, like we've been saying, not all institutional investors even want exposure to futures products. And so you have to kind of keep going down the down the ladder to get to the those that are in this environment, interested in futures based ETFs. Uh, for crypto assets, there's a lot of hoops to jump through to, to get to those specific investors, which is why we're seeing uh, less flows today than than perhaps in in Bitcoin uh, futures ETFs that we saw back when interest rates were lower uh, and and the market environment for crypto in particular was was significantly different. So excited about where the future is. Uh, it's going to land when we do turn the corner uh, for this next bull market, but not super surprised like Matt was saying earlier around the flows that we're seeing right now and, and uh, you know, I guess the lack of interest that there is overall in, in futures based ETFs at the moment. Yeah, the, I, I agree with everything Ryan said. The, the nuance I would add on top of it, it has opened my eyes a little bit to the fact that sort of many traditional investors, not the one Bitwise works with, and we work with thousands of firms who have educated themselves on crypto, but for many investors, it's still crypto. And they probably don't know the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And there's a whole educational process uh, to take place before they do more than just check the crypto box. I think, of course, there are professional investors who are expert. There are people who will, you know, debate, you know, not just Bitcoin, but first ETH, but ETH first Solana and on down the chain. But for many investors, it's still crypto. Uh, and I think that education process has to take place. In terms of like the the investment climate and just, I guess, the macro environment more broadly, how would you guys say investors are feeling? And I guess what's your own take on, you know, how you think the next 12 months look like? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but everyone in macro land is talking about the bond market. And I think if you would have showed people a picture of the bond market and asked if Bitcoin would be, you know, trading where it is right now, three years ago, uh, I, I think you'd be saying no, no shot. Bitcoin and ETH are trading where they are. So just curious to get your guys' thoughts on that front. Yeah. Ryan? Yeah, uh, you know, I think the macro environment is definitely playing a factor in in where crypto's at today. Uh, on on the one hand, if you look at, at crypto specifically, I think we've just reached a kind of a floor of of sellers. Like everyone who was gonna sell, pretty much has sold at this point. Uh, is what is what it feels like, and what uh, a lot of the data kind of indicates. And so, uh, th I think that's one reason why we're seeing kind of prices more stable despite what's going on with uh, the bond market and with the you know broader kind of macroeconomic climate uh on, on the flip side uh i do think that crypto has kind of separated itself a little bit from the macro environment over the past year or two we were so tied up in in the you know fiscal policy 
when COVID happened and, and the dramatic change and the like velocity change of interest rate uh, policy. And so all of that kind of drove the returns of crypto assets. That's why we saw super low interest rates. We saw crypto kind of skyrocket. Interest rates started rising very, very quickly uh, at an unprecedented rate. We saw, you know, crypto prices and all other kind of uh, risk assets collapse. And so uh, we're now seeing a little bit of a separation there as macro takes somewhat of a backseat, uh, you know, compared to where it was before. And people are focused more on, you know, institutional adoption, regulatory uh, evolution, right? And and so we're seeing institutions come into the crypto market. You think we just, uh, we saw UBS recently announced that they're exploring tokenized bonds on Ethereum. We're seeing, uh, you know, obviously big institutions file for spot Bitcoin ETFs, BlackRock, the largest uh, financial institution in, in the world, you know, looking to get into the spot Bitcoin ETF uh, market. And so I think those are better long-term signals for where the market's headed. I don't know if it's in this next year because there's obviously a lot of questions around what the Fed's going to do with interest rates and, and where we're at today. But I think, you know, there's some really strong tailwinds combined with the fact that, you know, a lot of sellers uh, have already sold over the past year and a half, two years. That's allowing crypto prices to, to kind of sit at more of a stable level uh, than, than they be. And so um, I think we're just going to kind of keep chopping sideways until we have that that next major leg up. But I would guess uh, that, you know, those major leg downs are, are somewhat behind us. Yeah, I, I think it's a great setup. I think there are a lot of financial advisors and financial professionals who open up their Bloomberg and try to decide what to buy. And it just looks gross. Like they're going to go into bonds and bonds look gross. They're going to go into stocks and stocks look gross. It's going to be a recession. They're already highly valued. And so I think that opens up their mind to what else what are the secular bull markets where we can escape this gray overhang of, of rising rates and spiraling inflation and a possible recession? What are the secular trends that are strong enough to supplant that and surpass that? And right now, crypto looks really good, right? Prices are already up and we haven't even had the catalyst of spot Bitcoin launches. You know, BlackRock is already coming into the market. And so I think investors, particularly as they go into year end, and they start to reset their portfolios for 2024 are going to look at the available choices and there's going to be this bright shining light of the best performing asset class of the year which still has its brightest days ahead of it and i think that's going to drive some flows so i think it's setting up pretty well for us all i heard was sellers have run out of coins the etf is coming and the month, a month after that we get a bitcoin happening so i don't know that sounds like that sounds like a recipe for success for me that's right uh, but one of the actually, I want to talk about Coinbase, and that's kind of been our baby on this show. And I think you guys shielded to us. Um, I don't know, gosh, I think our first appearance on the episode was over a year ago now, which is which is pretty awesome, by the way. Uh, so thanks for coming back. But I do want to talk about the latest and greatest going on over there. I mean, you know, they've had a lot going on, whether it be their new uh, purpose market, obviously base and its success. So how do you feel about Coinbase today? And is it safe to say it's kind of like this? Uh, in, a play on crypto's success and, and not to keep using ETFs, but in some way like an, an index fund on, on crypto as a whole. Yeah, look, I, I'm really excited about Coinbase. I think that they're they're playing this bear market particularly well compared to most companies out there. It's it's really exciting to see them continue to step up their product, uh, their product suite, right, in, in the face of all this bear market, in the face of all the scrutiny that they're under with their, uh, their lawsuit with the SEC. They're launching, uh, you know, purpose markets, they're, they're expanding globally uh, into new markets and in, increasing their footprint in markets internationally, they're already established in. 
And then they're launching base, obviously, you know, it's been, been pretty successful so far. And so I'm still really excited about Coinbase. They also, uh, you know, reworked their relationship with Circle around USDC. If we're talking about the macroeconomic environment and the interest rate environment. I mean, few business models are, are better positioned for rising interest rates than stablecoin issuers. And so I think Coinbase is, you know, almost it's definitely as exciting to me now as it, as it was when we last talked about it or the time before that. But it's almost more exciting when you think about all of those dynamics that have shifted in the market. We, we had the collapse of FTX. We're, we're kind of seeing the demise of Binance. We're seeing uh, exchanges and, and other service providers exit the U.S. market. And meanwhile, we're seeing Coinbase just expand and lean into the market and expand their offering and grow their grow their base. So uh, I'm really, really excited about it. I think that they're shifting their focus. Uh, as well, you know, into profitability, into uh, service-based revenues versus transactional revenues only, right? Which is only going to grow significantly when we do turn that corner. So, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about Coinbase. I think that they're making a lot of the right moves, and uh, we're we're also very fortunate that uh, you know when the SEC is coming after a company, they're they're coming after a company like Coinbase, which is well capitalized and you know seemingly well positioned to fight the good fight for crypto. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm I'm clearly pretty bullish uh, on Coinbase. Uh, as a business and, and with the moves they've been making, I think they're playing the bull market or the bear market extremely well. Yeah, no, I, I love that analysis. It's like, if I just try to like, if I was going to left curve this thing, be like, what's the most simple way to get excited about Coinbase? It's like, all right, it's a, the only publicly traded US company that is a, is a centralized exchange focused on crypto with that lives in a ultra high growth market and its competitors are pulling out foot guns left and right. It's like, all right, like, you know, it, it, it seems like a pretty easy thing to get excited about. And of course, I, I just love how they're fighting the good fight. And Brian Armstrong is doing such a great job on the media side of that as well. Right. Like explaining why mm -hmm. they're fighting the fight and explaining the highlights of why that's important. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, though, was the agreement with Circle and uh, how they kind of bought it, uh, bought in. I don't know the terms of the deal, but essentially came to an agreement around the ownership of, of the, the entity. Um, yet we, if you look at USDC market cap, that thing is just down only for 13 14 15 months at this point where, where how do what do we need to find a bottom like how, how does usdc kind of regain its market share and the reason why i ask is because i kind of think of that as a proxy for us investor allocations into crypto and is that even a is that a good way to think about usdc uh it's an interesting way to think about it i don't know if it's uh the right proxy to to look at um it's cer it's certainly one of them i think you're, you're going to have institutional investors in the u.s certainly go into usdc before they're going to go into usdt by all means but many institutional investors are likely accessing the market you know through through uh otc desks or uh through you know partners like like uh you know companies like bitwise and other companies who um are kind of managing that on their behalf and, and may not uh may not be you know subscribing to stable coins all that frequently and so um I do, I do agree. Obviously, you know, the data is telling us that I think the last time I looked, the USDC market share compared to Tether was, was like somewhere between 20 and 25%, which is, which is down significantly. Um, it, it's hard to know why that is. There's a lot of, you know, talk around, well, there's free redemptions with USDC. And so you see people kind of move into USDC and then redeem and it's just like drops the supply. There's also the fact that Tether controls the, the supply of USDT, right? They, they kind of mint and, uh, and burn USDT um, based on their expectations for supply and demand versus USDC, which you know has a kind of constant redemption and, and mint mechanism. And so, um, I think for sure in the in the next 
leg up in the market when we see more liquidity coming into the ecosystem. I certainly think that we'll see USDC's market share rise back up to where it was. It was hit hard uh, by the, uh, the the Silicon Valley Bank uh, crisis that we saw earlier this year, for sure. I think people were scared of of US-based stablecoin issuers, uh, despite the fact there's so much uh, lack of visibility into to Tether's uh, issuance and, and reserves. But uh, but yeah, I do think that we'll see a leg up for USCC once the market turns. It's it's a great alternative and it's it's uh, to, to the more volatile crypto assets. And it's, it's uh, integrated into like every single area of DeFi and crypto markets, obviously, so. Yeah, I would just add a few things on it. It's so bad. It's really disappointing. <laughs> Uh, you know, we made 11 predictions at the start of the year, and one was that USDC would exceed USDT from market cap. And it's the only one we got wrong. Otherwise, we would have had a perfect slate of predictions and we got it really wrong. Uh, I think there, there, there are two other explanations I would point to. One is that trading volume uh, on US based exchanges is just way down, right? There is just much less trading. Um, and so you would expect its market cap to go down. Uh, the other one I would note is is the real, you know, the differentiation between USDC and USDT is people who care about regulation and people who don't. Uh, and uh, I think until we get a unlock on stablecoin regulation in the U.S. and in other developed markets, I think it's going to uh, not be able to hit its full frame market. Right? It's not like Goldman Sachs is holding, you know. Uh, 100 million uh, USDC on its books. That's just not happening at this point in time. So those users are still restricted by the lack of regulatory clarity. Once we get that unlock, I think you'll see USDC uh, do exceptionally well. I'm still long bullish. We may make that prediction again this year. We'll see. Um, and uh, and hopefully we'll be more right than we were in 2023. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's a great point as well. And just jumping quickly back to Coinbase itself. One thing crypto Twitter loves talking about is how Wall Street doesn't understand like what base means for Coinbase, like base the L2. Do you think there's any merit to that? Like, is it, I don't know, like, do they, do they see the long-term potential of a centralized exchange, like owning and operating an L2 sequencer? Is there anything meaningful there? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's largely understood by the broader, uh, you know, institutional market if you think about the time they have to spend thinking about crypto the the amount of time they're thinking about the l2 sequencers being issued and and the company behind is issuing that and what that means for their business is like relatively small uh they're still trying to you know wrap their their minds around uh you know what are layer two scaling solutions why are there different ones and and what does that mean for ethereum let alone what does that mean for for the issuer so uh i, I don't think that people are call it pricing in or managing their expectations around how big base could be for Coinbase. It's, it's obviously, uh, you know, been very successful so far in, in the past few months, they have, you know, millions of transactions. They have tons of active users. Obviously, uh, friend tech was just an explosive application built on top of base. That's kind of spurred its own tentacles of like applications and its own little ecosystem. That's just, that's like the first case study of how large base could grow uh for coinbase for the broader ecosystem so i definitely think people are getting it uh, wrong when they when they think about it, or just aren't quite as aware uh maybe as they should be of how big base will be for coinbase yeah i would i would add on that that there are just no good analogies and tradfi thrives on analogies so bitcoin is digital gold coinbase is charles schwab base is what i'm not sure you can find an example of a tradfi company that did the equivalent of base and how it impacted and I think that lack of analogies means 
TradFi is not going to get it for two or three years uh, until it becomes an overwhelming factor in, in, in the balance sheet and the returns. I think it's going to take a while. How much do you guys think the ongoing lawsuit actually plays into like the, the lower valuation that Coinbase is currently trading at? Do you think that's a huge factor on most investors' radar, or do you guys think that's more of just something that's going on in the background? My view is that people look at those sorts of things as uh, in a binary way. If it's an existential risk to the business, then they'll factor it into the price. And if it's just a financial fine, they won't. Right? Wall Street companies get fined all the time. It never impacts their stock price, even when it's billions of dollars, because people are factoring in the long-term cash flow. I don't think most people see this as an existential event, so I don't think it's the primary drag on returns. It definitely on the edges raises some people's concern, maybe keeps a few investors from allocating. But I think Coinbase has a fairly strong reputation in the space. I just think there is a, a lack of recognition that we've turned the corner from the FTX days that we're in a new bull market and that they are the clear category leader. Um, I just think people haven't focused on that yet, but I, I don't, I don't think the lawsuit is that big a factor. Ryan may disagree, but that's my take. Yeah, no, I think, you know, if you want an analogy for it, I mean, how many times have we seen major banks take a fine from a U.S. regulator, uh, right? Just take it to the chin and kind of, you know, the stock price will shrug that off any given day. And so I, I do think it's, it's in the back of the mind or not in the mind at all for investors. And they're broadly thinking about what is, what is crypto adoption look like in five to 10 years? How does that translate into cash flow for Coinbase? How well are they positioned? That's why we've seen Coinbase be a strong performer year to date, right? Because it was highly oversold last year at the end of the year going into 2023. And now we've seen we've seen uh, investors clearly take interest in those in those price levels, uh, given where we're at in the bear market. And so I think mainly the investors are thinking about how exciting is it to own one of the largest crypto companies, one that's been around for longer than Ethereum's been around, and one that has its its hands into every single kind of facet of the crypto market. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the fine that they may incur through this lawsuit if they do settle is is really a, a small drop in the bucket on the broader scheme of things. Really, you know, for the amount of cash that they have and the amount of profit that they generate, it's it's not really a big concern uh, for the long term. That's actually really valuable insight. I would have expected very different answers from you guys. So that's kind of cool to hear. But um, do you think that the uh, kind of switching veins a little bit, do you think that the FTX liquidation, Mt. Gox supply overhang, all of that stuff plays a role in institutional investors' eyes? Or do you think that's also kind of a nothing burger? Look, I think that FTX plays, the, the narrative around FTX plays a bigger role in the mind of institutional investors than the potential liquidation of FTX holdings does. They're, they're so narrative driven and, and aren't paying such close attention to uh, some of those particular elements of the case or the evolution of uh, the, the FTX saga, right? They, they kind of are seeing the headlines that we're seeing this week of the of SBFs in court, right? And it's just kind of bringing back these these flashbacks to last year when we had you know, the biggest financial crime in the US in, in decades. And so uh, I think that it's it's definitely a factor to to uh, you know to crypto prices. Um, it's a, it's a large amount of assets that are, that are going to be sold on the market, but it's a it's again it's a really small element of what these these investors are thinking about. I don't think they're they're thinking more about uh, FTX and in what that meant for broader crypto than they're thinking about you know what the liquidation of FTX assets means for crypto prices in this current moment. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Mt. Gox is a little bit of an overhang. Uh, I think about Mt. Gox. That's a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, and I'm hopeful that a, a spot Bitcoin ETF is closely timed uh, with Mt. Gox to sort of even 
even that out um, on the market. So I, I do hear that concern a little bit. I agree, FTX, not a big concern. Just to make one more point on Coinbase, sorry to go backwards, took me a little while to pull up these stats. Uh, it's the same market cap as Pinterest. The, the size of Coinbase is so shocking when you compare it to other companies, given the scope of the market it's going after. I know we, we moved on past Coinbase, but I, I had to share that stat because uh, I thought people would enjoy it. On Zero X Research, we have never moved beyond Coinbase. So we really <laughs> love it. We love, and that's crazy because uh, what's the, if you have the numbers still in front of you, what's the market cap? It's about 17 billion. And that's before you take into account the five or six billion in cash. Uh, I mean, it's it's just shocking. It is, uh, it is shocking to have such a clear market leader that's executing so well in a space that could be so large at that kind of valuation. I, I don't, it doesn't track for me. The only reason that doesn't hold up in my mind is my mom, my sisters, my girlfriend, they all use Pinterest. And I feel like you just can't fade that. <laughs> That's women are always right. <laughs> Wait, there you go. All good. In terms of the uh, broader regulatory, I guess, environment over the next year or two, and then also heading into an election year, it's a topic of conversation. I don't know if I'm just sitting in an echo bubble and I actually think that it's a big thing on the political stage and it's actually not um i guess just where do you see us going over the next 12 to 24 months versus where we're at now yeah i'm really optimistic when i go to dc uh and talk with people in congress i hear bipartisan interest i hear a high level of understanding and i hear sort of the emergence of bipartisan agreement on ways to move forward on a regulatory front i think we've gone through the the worst of sort of the legislative and regulatory concerns surrounding crypto and we're now on the upslope and you can see that you know they're bipartisan letters to gary gensler asking him to approve spot bitcoin etfs they're bipartisan pieces of legislation uh moving us forward on the crypto front so I, i'm really optimistic and i i think the election is going to be crypto positive there are a lot of people um uh, who have become experts in crypto, you know, uh, that that are that are incorporating it on their platform. You're not just in the echo chamber. The the pro tem speaker of the house uh, has tweeted about the difference between algorithmic and collateral backed stablecoins. I mean, consider that fact. Uh, if you had said those words four years ago, there's no chance, even three years ago, and yet that is actually true at this current moment. So. I think it's a big deal and I think we're on the upslope and I think the elections will only accelerate that. Yeah, I mean, just to add on to that, uh, I, I think that you can't uh, underplay that the interim speaker of the house is such a pro crypto advocate and he's he's grilled Gary Gensler, uh, you know, in, in court over his stance towards crypto assets, his stance towards Ethereum, other crypto assets and, and the way that they've been standoffish towards crypto. And so I think you have these, these kind of, you know, once in an industry shifts in in regulation or in certain market factors, and I certainly feel like we're on the cusp of that from a regulatory perspective for crypto, and it's really really exciting. You saw, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a presidential candidate who spoke at the Bitcoin conference uh, in Miami this past year. I mean, it just goes to show that they're really taking the time, lawmakers, regulators, politicians, to get, learn about crypto, learn about the technology, learn about what it could do. Uh, you know, not just for the U.S., but for the, the broader world and kind of modern society. And they're they're leaning into that. Yes, because they obviously want support from pro-crypto voters and, and uh, pro-crypto lobbyists, maybe, but also just because they believe in the technology. And that's a huge zero to one shift 
for what we had uh, from from how regulators, lawmakers, and, and politicians viewed crypto two, three, four years ago during the last election cycle. So I'm really, really excited about where we're at in the kind of regulatory cycle for crypto. I think it's a once in an industry, uh, you know, one time in this industry that will have this major shift in regulation. I think we're right on the cusp of it. That's, that's really exciting in general for the unlock that could happen. All right. So this got me thinking. We At the beginning, we talked about some like financial vehicles making it easier to access crypto and why that's exciting. And we've talked about, you know, companies in the space and why they are really exciting points in their their cycle. We've talked about the crypto market as a whole and why it's at a very critical point in its cycle, uh, even from a regulatory uh, standpoint and why that's exciting. Why is this all wrong? What are the overhangs that we need to be watching for? And and like what kind of blows up this this idea of we're at a really, really, really critical spot in crypto? <laughs> That's great. We, we love these exercises at Bitwise. I do them all the time uh, with the team. Uh, you know, we, we should we should admit that there's no uh, breakthrough app that people are using like Pinterest. We're still in uh, the, the, the crypto inside cycle and we can point to experiments. We can point to proof of concepts. We can point to uh, crypto industry breakthroughs. But uh, Sam's mom, aunt, and whoever else is on Pinterest is uh, is probably not doing the same on crypto yet. And I think that is a big, uh, big potential overhang. Um, and then other overhangs, there are always existential risks threatening crypto. Uh, we're one bad news story away from that regulatory cycle shifting. Uh, and so, you know, a, a major negative event uh, or a major negative use of crypto in the world uh, could turn the regulatory tides. And uh, that's something you just don't know in, until you wake up in the morning. So th those are two of my uh, dark clouds uh, that that keep me up at night. Ryan, what do you have? Yeah, I have I have two uh, more specific dark clouds that keep me up at night. I would say the overhanging risk of a of an implosion of Binance uh, really keeps me up. You know, I think we took uh, obviously the implosion of FTX was a big hit to the industry, and I just think that uh, you know all of these rumors and all of these uh, events around Binance that, that are happening, right? We see a mass exodus across the executive suite uh, for Binance, for Binance US. I think that that kind of keeps me up at night because uh, and I think, you know, most of us that are deeper in the weeds probably don't even really use Binance, right? Like it's not something that I, I go to and use when I'm using crypto applications, when I'm trading, when I'm exploring new applications. But I think it's such a big piece of the crypto industry, uh, just from the size of it as an exchange, but also from what the mainstream media talks about and thinks about and what anti-crypto politicians and, and, and regulators could cite when they uh, when they talk about crypto. So that's one that, that I think is a big overhang uh, that I hope is is a bit of a nothing, uh, a nothing burger. But the other one I would say is Tether. It's another one, right? I mean, it's, it's been one that's hanging uh, over crypto, you know, for, for years now. Uh, and, and I'm not necessarily in the camp where I believe that Tether's uh, reserves aren't there or there's something funky going on with Tether's reserves. But if we're thinking, you know, tinfoil hat, worst case scenario for crypto, I think the collapse of Binance is, is pretty bad. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the potential, if, if there was one collapse of Tether, could be equally bad, uh, if not worse. And so I think those are the two things specifically that uh, have that dark cloud over over my head uh, when I when I try to put on that uh, put on that mindset. You know, I, I would have agreed to on the USDT thing, other than the fact that when USDC depegged, it's like, how is Tether not being affected by the banking struggles that everyone else is struggling with? That was a bit of a red flag. And I'm, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I think I think no one knows what Tether is actually holding, especially at that time. And and as strange as it is to think that the lack of transparency was actually a positive uh, a positive mark for them, but I, I do think that's it. You you looked at USDC, you're like okay, well they they're actually coming out and saying that ten percent of their reserves are sitting with a bank that's insolvent. Uh, you look at Dai, who holds a large portion large portion of their reserves in USDC, which is with you know, a bank that is insolvent. And then you look at USDT, you're like, well, I don't really know what they're holding, but like, they probably don't have a lot of US banking partners. And, and you know, I don't know, maybe maybe they're just like, by by their lack of transparency, incited some level of confidence that led people to, to that being the only alternative if they wanted to stay in stable coins. So that's a bit of a weird paradox to be in where their lack of transparency was a positive mark for them. That's in my mind, how I was thinking about that kind of weird market dynamic. And then, Matt, you mentioned one of your kind of dark clouds is just the lack of actual consumer applications with crypto integrated. What do you guys think outside of stable coins? Because I think we all agree stable coins have definitely demonstrated product market fit and we all expect those to grow substantially over the next decade. But outside of stable coins, what applications? Um, are you guys expecting to kind of be that first killer use case for crypto? Oh, man, that's a good question. If I knew that, I'd go build a billion dollar app uh, as a side hustle to what I'm doing here at Bitwise. Um, I, I think I think uh, I think you have to look at the new capabilities that we have in crypto that we didn't have before and think about what that means. So what are those capabilities? I think the rise of layer two and the flattening of transaction costs is a big change from where we were in the past cycle, and that will enable new applications. Some of the places I would look in that is non-financial applications. Uh, I think we've already seen some signs, Ryan was speaking of it, that we've seen sort of breakthrough applications start to spiral out in non-financial applications. That's something you can do when you have reliably low fees. Um, I think uh, you know micropayments and other things could be a space that we see. Uh, I think DeFi could be a big unlock if we got regulatory clarity. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know exactly, but I do know that historically looking at capabilities leads you to uh, to where those are. I think the new capabilities are reliably low fees, higher throughput and soon regulatory clarity. And if you put those three things in a blender and see what comes out, I think those will be where the, the, the breakthroughs are. More specifically, uh, I'm I'm personally really excited about ticketing. I know this is like kind of a, like a, a weird thing to hang your hat on, maybe. Uh, but I think ticketing is like one of those killer applications outside of stable coins for crypto that could really like solve like using NFTs and using crypto technology to take care of ticketing could solve every problem that we see with ticketing. And if you look at how big something like, you know, the Taylor Swift Eras tour was like ticketing is not a small it's not a small industry. And it's 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 so uh, prevalent that you have price gouging and that you have lack of royalties on ticket resales for artists and performers and uh, just like the the ease of transferring and, and, and exchanging tickets without having these enormous fees from the, the, the uh, marketplaces where you do that at. I guess that's an example that's so clear to me and that I think people who maybe don't understand blockchain technology, don't understand crypto, or when they hear NFTs, they think of, you know, monkey pictures or penguin pictures when they when they first uh, eventually experience kind of a, a near zero fee ticketing marketplace that's instantaneous, that they, you know, can easily pull up on their phone or send to a friend or or resell you know very easily uh or, or buy without a large fee i think that's something that could kind of unlock the the technology of of 
blockchain in people's minds uh, around what that can do. And then that opens up a bunch of other use cases. But, uh, you know, we see Ticketmaster, Sports Illustrated uh, launched uh, or partnered with Consensus, I think, on a ticketing marketplace earlier this year. We're seeing a lot of inter like interesting things around that, uh, you know, or, or uh, I, I, the name's escaping me, but there's, there's a... Uh, there's a ticketing NFT company that works with movie theaters to help kind of uh, provide metadata on on moviegoers uh, to the studios and to the uh, to the to the movie theater and stuff. So I think there's a lot of interesting thing around around ticketing uh, that gets me excited when I try to not think about stable coins as the as the killer app. I I throw in two more things. I, I like those examples, Ryan. I would, I would point back to stable coins, actually. I think they've penetrated about 1% of their potential market. I think stable coins as a payment tool and a way to access dollars outside of the US are not a $1 trillion use case. I think that's a 10 or $100 trillion use case. So I really think stable coins are a big piece. The other thing I would note is often the breakthrough things were presaged in the past cycle, right? Crypto kitties before NFTs, ICOs before DeFi. And so if I were sort of thinking in that space, I would look back at sort of the, the initial breakthroughs we saw, even in the last bull run. I think DeFi has probably just, just scratched the surface. So sometimes it's, it's what's the next leg. Maybe that's tokenization um, uh, is an example of, of how I've seen these things transpire in the past. Yeah, Ryan, I, I loved you pointing towards NFTs because I, I, I've said this a few times, so I won't harp too long here, but it's just like that is... To me, that is something that we have, we have this like superpower and we have no idea how to use it. And it is definitely not 10,000 collections of PFPs. That is for sure. Uh, so I'm really excited to see where this goes, whether it's like tokenizing block space and having an NFT that represents the rights to order transactions in a given block or ticketing is a really great real world example as well. I, I do think there's something there. And I, I just, what worries me is like, I just don't know how long it's going to take to figure out because you know, round one was a disaster. Um, but Matt, yeah, you mentioned uh, tokenization. So this this is my my crackpot theory. So please shoot me down here. But um, what do you think about the idea? And assuming there was the regulatory environment that allowed for this to happen, because obviously that is so far from the truth today. Use it like tokenizing Coinbase stock and using that as like the gas token of their L2. This is my crackpot theory. Wow, that is an interesting theory. Um, that's an interesting idea. I love, I love the sort of uh, synthesis analysis of ways to go. I've often thought, um, you know, stocks could could theoretically uh, be a payment vehicle. There, there can be tax issues around that, so we'd have to clear out mm. tax reporting. Um, has been one of one of the chaos, but um, but that's an interesting idea. That's sort of reverse engineering. Uh, the Ethereum ecosystem into into Coinbase itself, which is uh, which is pretty clever. So, I love it. Let's see it. Let's try all these experiments. Uh, you never know which one's going to hit. How about tokenization more broadly? Like real world assets has been a pretty big narrative lately. You see MakerDAO absolutely killing it on the real world asset vaults. You've got Ondo tokenizing T bills. Is this like a, a trend that you guys expect to continue over the next? honestly, the next bull run? Or is this something that do you, you think we need just more regulatory uh, clarity before it can actually take off and, and reach the masses? You know, I think tokenization is here to stay. It's one thing that gets me really excited about. It's like one of these like kind of financial corners of real world use cases that like just being in being like a finance person and in crypto, maybe I get really excited about. Right. But I, but I think like more broadly speaking, when I got into crypto and started thinking about 
or learning about the different use cases. Like that was one that was really, really exciting to me. You can, you know, we, we all at one point or another trade stocks, options, uh, you know, th things like that in our traditional brokerage accounts. And when you start to learn about behind the scenes, how long it takes to settle transactions, right? Like, like you have two days to settle transactions. That's kind of mind blowing as soon as you do a single transaction on a decentralized exchange using crypto. And so just the ability to whether it's tokenizing bonds, whether it's borrowing against other tokenized real world collateral, whether it's trading tokenized uh, real world assets instantly uh, with without a middleman with lower fees. I just think it's really, really exciting. It's like it's it's essentially replacing uh, lawyers with smart contracts when you start to think about the tokenization of real world assets that reduces the amount of fees and increases the efficiency. So it's something that I get really, really excited about. I think you can't you can't short sell the amount of interest we're seeing from very large financial institutions in tokenizing real world assets. I mentioned it earlier, but UBS is looking to tokenize bonds. We've already seen JP Morgan do that. We're seeing Franklin Templeton. They have a tokenized money market fund. I mean, it's, there's there's uh, you know, there's reasons behind why they're doing it. And that's the potential that they see for these markets to uh, to evolve and be transformed by blockchain technology. So I think it's here to stay. I think we've had that kind of zero to one moment already. So I get super excited about it because I think it's one of the major uh, use cases, albeit financial use cases, uh, primarily for crypto and for blockchain technology. It's one that I get really, really excited about. Yeah, I do too. And I'd, I'd add one thing on top of that that I don't think people have noticed really, which is in the past when we saw these pilot projects from big institutional firms looking into tokenizing treasury funds or whatever, they were all built on private blockchains. And that's completely shifted, right? The UBS tokenized platform is built on Ethereum, right? Uh, MasterCard announced new settlement plans on Solana. They've all moved to public blockchains. I think that's a really big unlock. And I just also love one of the great things about crypto is having facts that you can point to, which are ear, can't be can't be disputed. And to use the tokenized example, you know, Goldman Sachs structured a hundred million dollar bond on Ethereum. It settled in an hour. And it usually takes five days. Uh, that's just a fact. Now, that, does, that doesn't mean that all bonds will go onto Ethereum tomorrow, but it does mean that TradFi has a long way to catch up with the efficiencies we can already deliver today if we can get that regulatory unlock. And those, those facts are just really valuable in opening people's minds to how real these savings will be uh, in the future. I absolutely love to hear that because it does seem like that's kind of a very meaningful next step for for the industry what about the like how do we deal with the regulatory overhang there like is there an issue that like you know MakerDAO has its SDI token that is basically just passing you know treasury yield onto any individual with no kyc like is that a problem <laughs> yes of course it is you can't you can't ignore the regulatory setup and uh and regulations are complex but the way regulatory progress works as ugly and horrible and messy as it is, is that people stress the boundaries and they stress the boundaries and then their enforcement actions, which define the boundaries. And then hopefully there's legislation which expands it more broadly. So this is this is part and parcel of the process, um, but we won't get to just ignore them. We won't get to ignore regulations. We will have to either uh, influence legislation to to show the benefits uh or or see where the lines on the court are and only play within those lines but i'm optimistic that we'll get to this point of increasing benefits all major changes in how financial technology systems work are seen as impossible and then happen very quickly 
uh, if you go back to stocks, it was impossible not to have trading take place on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange with humans holding tickets. People railed against that. And then one day we woke up and it was all upstairs and all digital overnight, just like that. And I think that will happen here as well. It may seem impossible that we'll move from traditional rails to blockchain rails, uh, but one day we will wake up and it will it will happen effectively overnight. Uh, and I think that's that's what the history of sort of financial technology changes show. And I think that'll be repeated here. So what does that look like in practice? Because we see a couple different strategies being explored by different teams today. So like MakerDAO and Frax kind of like used, like in the case of MakerDAO, they have you know various off-chain ent entities that they just interact with, where Frax is kind of internalizing that with their new FinRes PBC entity that kind of operates us all under one umbrella. So that's kind of like one approach is like working with off-chain entities versus something like uh, Rob Leshner's new project, Superstate, which is basically saying like, hey, we're, we're just a company that is going to do this. And then we're going to give you uh, a token that represents your ownership of this asset on chain. You can't transfer it. You have to KYC to get it and kind of go that route. Like that kind of seems like the way that fits under like, okay, if we're going to do this as legal as possible, given the guidelines today, you'd kind of go the Rob Leshner route. But how do you see the, the balance between the two and like which one is probably the better way to go about this? Yeah, I think you have to think about what gets us to 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 step one and what gets us to a hundred. And probably the 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 more traditional structure gets us to step one is an important step. And then down the road, you need uh, automated KYC through on-chain identity that makes it all seamless and happen instantly. Um, so we, we know that that's like the the destination, uh, but it, it it's it's probably stressing the boundaries to try to get to that too quickly. Um, so, so both will work. They just have their phases and increments is my thought. I love that perspective guys. Honestly, anyone listening to this, check out Bitwise's product. Seriously. Like if you have a, a brother or dad or aunt or uncle who isn't capable of self custodying, like these guys actually are doing the work to make it possible to get access to these, uh, these assets in a, honestly, a safer way. So can't recommend enough checking out the website that we can link to in the show notes. And I guess I just did you guys a shill for you, but Matt, Ryan, do you have any closing <laughs> comments for us? No, that was great. Great to be on again. Uh, really appreciate the time. You know, follow Ryan and I on Twitter. We go back and forth there as well. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. Until next time. See you guys later.